Well, thank you so much again for the invitation to join with you this morning. It's uh, a real privilege and uh, I'm so very grateful. I'd like to look with you at um, Mark chapter 9 and the first 13 verses. We're going to read them together. If you have your Bible, do please follow along. We know enough to know that we are wise to look at the context or the setting of verses. And if you look at chapter 8, you'll see that towards the end of the chapter, Jesus teaches his disciples about his forthcoming crucifixion. He predicts his death. And of course, they're absolutely shocked when they hear that because that doesn't fit in with their idea of, of what he should do. And you know that Peter turns around and rebukes Jesus. And Jesus then turns around and rebukes Peter quite bluntly. But he says in verse one of chapter nine, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked round, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about them. Let's pray together. Father, as we're going to open your word and look at it, we, we really don't want this to be an academic exercise, Lord. We just pray that your Holy Spirit would touch our hearts and cause them to blossom the way a flower blossoms when it's kissed by the sun. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you'd give us that special ability to concentrate. The enemy would want us to go to sleep, but we pray, Father, that our hearts might engage with you and that we might find our very souls stirred within us to praise you as truth is laid before us. So come and help us, Lord, that we might worship you in a way that honours you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we have uh, a great opportunity of looking at and lingering 
over what is really a marvelous passage of scripture. And I have to tell you that my heart has been blessed as I've spent time thinking about the verses, and my prayer is that you will be blessed too. When you're looking at a passage of scripture, it's always useful to see if there are parallel passages in other places, particularly in the gospel accounts, because each different parallel passage gives us a slightly different perspective and sheds light. And if you want the full picture, it's just good to look at the passages side by side. Well, I think the very first verse must have been a big puzzle to the disciples. Jesus had taught them that he was going to die. And then he said, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And I think that they were wondering, what on earth does that mean? They were puzzled by that. And then it goes on to say in verse two, after six days, so they'd six days to, to puzzle all that Jesus had taught them. After six days, days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. They went up a high mountain. Now, I wonder how long the climb was. Mount Hermon, where some scholars feel uh, Jesus took them, is over 9,000 feet above sea level. And when you remember that the land beneath the mountain is below sea level, it was a fair climb. I don't know how long it took them to climb the mountain, but we know that they went up the mountain to pray together. Now, why did Jesus take his most intimate disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, up this mountain? Uh, and the answer is, they really needed to be encouraged. Six days before, Jesus had jolted them with the reality of the coming cross and the necessity of his suffering. Jesus had asked who they believed he was, and Peter had answered with his great confession, you are the Christ. And then Jesus began to teach them that he had to suffer many things, be rejected, and ultimately killed, but that after three days he would rise again. And predictably, Peter objected and received a stinging rebuke from Jesus. And this precipitated Jesus calling the crowd to him and telling them that when they embraced him as Messiah, they embraced a suffering Messiah. And that life would include them having to take up their own crosses and following. This was radical, a revolutionary revelation, and totally out of, out of sync with their messianic expectations. They thought that the Savior was going to come as a, as a king and he'd maybe wave his arms in the air and the Roman armies would leave and they would enter into a day that would be even greater than King Solomon's day. But it wasn't to be like that. So quite naturally, they were confused and I guess rather depressed. And with what was coming, the Lord realized that it needed to be balanced with some positive realities. So now he had them in the crisp atmosphere of the alpine heights of Mount Hermon, away from everything, alone with him under the spinning summer constellations. They were on top of the world with Jesus. And here they were going to be bombarded with the most stupendous blast of encouragement 
that mortals have ever known. Now, I don't know about you. I had my COVID jag a couple of weeks ago, um, but I really don't know how effective it's going to be. I don't know if it's going to stop me passing it on or protect me from getting it. And this has been going on for such a long time. And we don't really see a huge amount of, um, we don't see an end to this coming. So a lot of folks are really quite low and depressed by all of this. And maybe you're feeling a little bit low. I know that Anne in her pastoral ministry contacts lots of people and lots of folks, particularly those who are on the, on the plus side of 50, are, are struggling emotionally because of all that's going on. Well, maybe, just maybe, as Jesus encouraged Peter, James, and John, there's some encouragement for us in this passage this morning. So Jesus took them up the mountain to pray, and what a place it was for a prayer meeting. We're not told what Jesus prayed. It might have been a little bit like his high priestly prayer in John 17, where Jesus prayed for himself, and then he prayed for the church, and then he prayed for the church of the future, for those who will believe. And surely the three disciples joined in. And how long did the prayer meeting last? I, we've no idea. I imagine if they spent such a long time getting up the mountain, that it wasn't a 10-minute prayer meeting, uh, but we're, we're not told. But what we are know, what we do know, is that the disciples must have been a little bit tired. Luke 9.32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy. Perhaps the prayer meeting had gone on for a long time, and they'd had this long climb up this 9,000-foot mountain, and they were, I guess, very tired. Well, not only were they very tired, uh, I think they went to sleep. And we don't know who woke up first, but whoever it was must have woken up the other two. Look at verse uh, 2b and 3. There was Jesus in, in front of them, before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And, and, and Luke says that it, they were as bright as a flash of lightning. Now, I don't know if you've ever actually focused on lightning. It's a bit, it's a bit of a hit and miss thing, isn't it? Because it comes so quickly and it goes, but it, it just such a bright light. It, 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 it illuminates uh, just about everything, doesn't it? Well, there they were, and they were absolutely terrified. Matthew 17 says that Jesus, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, just imagine waking up to that. They were overwhelmed by it. Many years ago, when my three boys were very small, I very occasionally would go out and buy some fireworks uh, at, at the appropriate time, November, whatever it was, I, I, I did so with a measure of reluctance because even before I went to Scotland, I didn't like the idea of just burning money, which is what fireworks are. But I, I, when it was dark and just before they were to go to bed, uh, we would go outside and they would be in maybe their dressing gowns and I would light 
the, the little fireworks thing, they would go up and explode and the kids would be absolutely mesmerized. They would look at uh, their faces, eyes wide open, absolutely filled with delight, totally focused, filled with a sense of wonder because they didn't see these things very often. And don't you think the disciples were a little bit like that? They'd never, ever experienced anything like it. But Jesus and this extraordinary light in front of them, how amazing that must have been. Jesus saw his glory lighting their faces, their awestruck faces, as he was transfigured before them. Well, you know, the, the word transfigured in the Greek gives us our English word metamorphosis and the a metamorphosis is a change on the outside that comes from the inside and we all know that how the caterpillar works that the caterpillar eats all your cabbages and when it's had enough it then uh, goes in forms a little uh, builds a little cocoon uh, and later uh, it, it comes out of the cocoon, cocoon uh, uh, as a butterfly. And it's due to the process of metamorphosis, a process uh, that, that comes from within. You see, the Lord's glory was not reflected. It was radiated from within him. He chose to walk through this world as deity who had stepped into humanity and his glory was just shrouded. People couldn't see it. But just in this instance, Jesus allowed his glory to shine through. And it came from within him. There was change on the outside that came from within as he allowed his essential glory to shine forth. And this was the glory that had been his before he'd come to earth. And it is for us to look forward to his future glory. And this was to fill their hearts with hope. And they would need hope as the darkness of the cross descended for a little while. The cross eclipsed their hope for a brief period. And yet John would later write in verse 14 of the first chapter of the gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And as they watched spellbound, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. How do you think they recognized Moses and Elijah? Well, there weren't photographs for them to, to say, oh, I've seen him in a magazine. How did they recognize them? Well, we're not told. Somehow, the Spirit of God revealed to them who Elijah and Moses were. And as an aside, this gives us great hope that one day when we get to glory, that when we see others who love the Lord and who've gone before us, we're going to recognize them too. Perhaps in exactly the same way as Peter, James, and John uh, recognized Elijah and Moses. Why did Elijah 
and Moses appear? Well, Moses represented the law of God because God used Moses to pass on the law, and Elijah represented the prophets, and both of which find their fulfillment in Jesus. The law finds its fulfillment in Jesus, and the prophets find their fulfillment in Jesus. Now, both Moses and Elijah had had conversations with God on, on mountaintops, and they'd both been given a glimpse of God's glory. And there they were in front of Peter, James, and John, and they were talking with Jesus. And what do you think they were talking about? Well, Luke gives us a little insight, and he says in chapter 9, verse 31, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They were talking about Calvary and Christ's death on a cross. We don't know how much detail Jesus went into. Perhaps Moses and Elijah when they made all of their prophecies and Moses gave the law, knowing that the fulfillment of the law was coming, didn't understand how it was all going to work out. And perhaps Jesus was explaining it to them. And the tense used would indicate that it was an extended conversation. And what a conversation it must have been as Jesus spoke to them about the cross and all that he was going to accomplish on the cross. I'm not sure how much Peter, James, and John understood uh, of that conversation. Nevertheless, Peter's confession was surely confirmed. What an amazing sight that must have been. Moses had died some 1,400 years earlier. Elijah about 900 years earlier, and here they were in front of Peter, James, and John. And if there was ever a time to keep quiet and to, and to listen and to observe, this was it. But Peter wasn't the man uh, to keep quiet. Dear old Peter, uh, Peter was a man who always had to say something even when there was nothing to be said, and he liked to put his foot in his mouth. Um, not deliberately, That's, that was just Peter. He was a big, impetuous man. Well, as, uh, as, they, were, uh, as they were looking, and, and uh, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, yet they were so frightened. And what was Peter doing? Well, I think he felt he had to say something. And, and this, is what, this is what he said. But the Lord didn't answer him. In fact, the Lord kind of interrupted him. A study of the Old Testament reveals that a luminous cloud known as the Shekinah glory which was a sign of the reality of the presence of God. It was the form in which God revealed himself to Israel. Do you remember when they were leaving Egypt, they followed a pillar of cloud by day. And at nighttime, there was a pillar of fire 
went before Israel in the wilderness. This was the cloud which passed by Moses as God covered him in the cleft of the rock with his hand so that Moses only saw the afterglow of God's presence. This was the cloud which covered the nearly finished tent of meeting and so filled the new tabernacle with God's glory that Moses couldn't enter it. It was the same cloud that filled Solomon's temple on dedication day so that the priests couldn't enter the temple. This was God saying, I am present. It had been 600 years since anyone in Israel had seen the Shekinah glory. Look at verse 7. It says, then a cloud appeared and covered them. I think God was interrupting Peter. And I wonder, was that cloud visible from the valley below? We're not told. I don't know. But as they stood shimmering with Christ in the cloud, this was not only a declaration about Christ, but a prophecy about what is to come. In the future, in death, they would meet the risen Christ in the incandescent clouds to be with him forever. Look what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a cloud, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. They were, as it were, to put their arms around this blessed experience and to pull it into themselves. And so must we, because this is our hope too. The end of verse 17, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, this same Lord is going to return in a cloud of glory and that those who die before are going to rise to meet him in the air too, in the cloud of glory. That is what is in front of us. And someday we're going to be in that cloud and that Shekinah glory is going to surround us. Wow. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love listen to him. This was the voice of God the Father. And we remember that Jesus said almost the same thing, or rather the Father said almost the same thing when Jesus uh, was baptized. And years later, Peter would write, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths, devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And Peter goes on to say, goes on to say you will do well to pay attention. You will do well 
to pay attention. You see, Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's truth and how vital it is that we listen to him. There was a time when some of the people said to Jesus, your teaching is too hard, and they turned and they walked away from them. And so Jesus turned to his disciples and he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And when there are young Christians who maybe don't go down deeply into the word of God today, who don't have those deep roots, they can come to a point of saying, this is, this is too hard. I've, I've, got to, you know, I've got to give up all sorts of stuff to follow Jesus. But oh, following Jesus, when we understand that Jesus is the, is the truth, this is what we need to do. We need to listen to him. Jesus said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within them. If we are thirsty for God, and if we come to Jesus, then he becomes like a, a, a well of living water that will well up within us, that will satisfy us. But, but the satisfaction is only momentary in that it makes us thirsty for more. It's a virtuous circle. We taste and we want more and then we get more and we want more. That's what Jesus is saying here. And Matthew says, again, quoting Jesus, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. What a beautiful description of Jesus. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He doesn't say you'll find rest for your bodies. He says you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And when Peter, James, and John heard the Father's voice. They fell face down to the ground. They were absolutely terrified because God is terrifying. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But that fear is not a fear that imagines that God has a big stick. No. It's a fear to offend God because we know how great he is. And in response to the greatness and glory of God, they had no option but to fall on the ground terrified. And remember, we read that a day is coming, Philippians 2, when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When the glory of God is revealed, men and women around this world will fall to their faces before him. But, oh, we're so grateful that we do this willingly because we know him and we know something of his greatness. Peter, James, and John were absolutely terrified. And what did Jesus do? He reached out and he touched them. And he said, get up, don't be afraid. How marvelous that Jesus would reach out and touch them. That physical connection. It's wonderful to follow that, that theme through the, through the Gospels of Jesus touching 
people. He touched them and he said, don't be afraid. Why did he say that? Because they were absolutely terrified. Mark 9 verse 8, suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Moses and Elijah had gone. They only saw Jesus. I want to suggest that when we look around today, we see lots of things. We see the church, we see the church family, we see church personalities, we see ministries. We're sometimes almost overwhelmed by the burdens that we face and the pressures that we live with. This virus, this pandemic has impacted every life, everybody. We may know some folks who have suffered with it and maybe even died from it. And perhaps we feel a little fearful because maybe we're going to get it. It is a wonderful thing to have a high view of the sovereignty of God because God doesn't make any mistakes and we may well get it. But we have a future to look forward to. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an, e e an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The Lord Jesus was completely a man, and yet he was completely divine. He stepped as divinity into deity. And just for a moment on that mountain, he revealed externally what was internal. He allowed his glory to shine through. Just for that brief moment. But one day, if we know him, we shall bathe in that Shekinah glory, in his presence. What a thought that is. Some months later, towards the end of Jesus' life, as the cross loomed even larger, he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And that was a really special occasion in the temple. It was the end of the festival, and the previous night of uh, an unforgettable ceremony, the illumination of the temple that had taken place. You see, there are four huge candelabra in the temple, and each of the candelabra would be filled with up to 65 uh, liters of oil at, at the top of the candelabra. The young priests would take the 65 liters, probably not all at once, up ladders, and they would put the oil in the candelabra. And when evening came, uh, these candelabra would be lit, and the flames would go up into the, into the sky, and they would illuminate not just the temple, but people would say that the whole of Jerusalem was illuminated by the lights from, from, from these lamps. And this uh, right, this, this, celebrated the great pillar of fire, which was the glorious cloud of God's presence, which had led the Israelites during their time in the wilderness. And that light engulfed the, 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 the temple. 
And in the temple treasury, the morning after this event, with the charred torches still in place, in place, Jesus lifted his voice to the crowd and he said, I am the light of the world. And there could be scarcely a more emphatic way to announce one of the supreme truths of his existence. Christ was saying, in effect, that the pillar of fire that came between you and the Egyptians that stood there keeping you safe and the cloud that guided you by day in the wilderness and the pillar of fire that illuminated the night and enveloped the tabernacle, the glorious cloud that filled Solomon's temple. That was me because I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Wow. What an extraordinary moment that was. The Shekinah glory. He is the Shekinah glory. And we have in him the light of life. What we have to do is to open our hearts. And perhaps the most important question I could ask you this morning is the question that Jesus asked. He'd asked them about who those around said he was. And then he personalized and he said, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And that, my friends, is the most important question you and I shall ever have to answer in our lives. Who do you say that Jesus is? What an extraordinary glimpse we get here of this Shekinah glory, this glory that was the announcement of the presence of God. And they looked at Jesus and he allowed his glory to shine through and it impacted them for the rest of their lives and it motivated them to keep going even when it was difficult after the resurrection. When they came under pressure, they just remembered the glory of God and it kept them going. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if you and I have any understanding of the reality of the glory of God, it will keep us going, even through the difficult days of this pandemic, even through the difficult days of financial challenges and the family challenges of relationship channel challenges and of the political mess that we're in, the fact that the, the gospel tide seems to be receding in Scotland, I'm not sure that it is. I think the church is being refined and God is at work. And because he's on his throne, we can trust him. He's too wise ever to make any mistakes and too gracious ever to be unkind. What about you? Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Well, I hope that like me, you can say, Lord, you are my Lord and my Savior. I'm trusting. I don't understand all that is happening in this world today. But my eyes are on you because you are the way, the truth, and you're the life. And I know beyond a shadow of doubt that one day, I don't know when, but one day, you're going to bring me home to spend the whole of eternity with you.
It's a marvelous thing that Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's not a task that he's assigned to a junior apprentice angel. It's something that he is doing himself. And in fact, it says in, I think it's Ecclesiastes chapter 7, that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Why? Because we get to go home. and We get to live within that Shekinah glory in his presence. How wonderful that will be. Maybe there's somebody this morning, you're a little bit frightened by, by the thought of what might lie ahead for us. Don't you think he knows? And didn't he say to Paul, my grace is sufficient, not might be sufficient, but is sufficient. May that be our experience. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in a small way for a brief time, we've tried to climb up that mountain with Peter, James and John. And as they were overwhelmed, so we pray that our hearts have in some small measure been overwhelmed by that sense of your presence and the magnificence of your glory, because one day by grace we're going to see it. And, oh God, how then our hearts will thrill within us, how we shall not be able to contain our voices as we will just overflow with praise as we fix our eyes on your beauty and your glory. What a feast that will be for us. But Lord, you've called us to live in the here and now, albeit with one eye on the there and then. And we want to pray for one another that you would encourage us to keep going, that we might, uh, when we're struggling, just remember what by grace lies in front of us. Pour out a special blessing up upon the church family at New Beginnings. Please, O oh Lord, just really encourage them and fire them up for your glory. We ask these things in the precious and lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.